Your Partner in Success Radio is a free business podcast with host Denise Griffiths. It's all about great stories, conversation, and context to help you move your business and life forward with actionable tips and advice from her guest experts. To listen and subscribe, just find us on iTunes, Google Play, or wherever you consume your podcasts. Welcome to your Partner in Success Radio. I'm your host, Denise Griffiths, and today I am joined by John David and Anna Mann, who have been dreaming about writing The Go-Giver Marriage together for nearly two two decades. And I have to tell you, we are just a few days away from, excuse me, from Valentine's Day, so the timing is perfect. So John David Mann is the co-author of more than 30 books, including four New York Times bestsellers and five national bestsellers, including The Go-Giver. We all have read that book, I think, which was co-authored with Bob Berg and which has sold over 1 million copies and also won the 2017 Living Now Book Awards Evergreen Medal for its contributions to positive global change. There was a follow-up book, The Go-Giver and then The Go-Givers. What was it, John? Give more? I can't remember. I have it. I can't remember. Yeah, Go-Givers Sell More. And then there was the go-giver leader and the go-giver influencer, and now here we are, the go-giver. Oh, geez, I, don't, I do not have a complete collection. I need to work on that. We'll, we'll have to fix that. We'll fix that. Yeah, yeah. So anyway, John is married to Anna Gabriel Mann and considers himself to be the luckiest man in the world, M-A-N-N. And Anna holds a master's degree in clinical psychology and dance movement therapy from Antioch, New England, where she specialized in working with adults and family therapy. In addition to her work in family therapy and Five Secrets Marriage Coaching, she has been clinical director for a program for people with Alzheimer's disease. She co-founded New England's First College of Chinese Medicine and worked as a corporate consultant, speaker, trainer, and coach. And now I'm breathless. By the way, John John has been my guest here along with Bob Berg, the go-giver, and I was delighted when he called me to tell me about this new book. Yeah, welcome. I am so happy. I'm bouncing up and down in my chair. I'm so happy to have you here. We're delighted to be here. It's so great to put this together. Yes, thank you so much. Oh, listen, you sent me the book. I have um, an advanced copy, and thank you for that. And I took pictures of it. Well, you noticed it. I cracked that spine. I've got stickies all over it. I have read this book a couple, well, about two or three times here, there, and yonder. It's fat. It's gotten to be a fat book. It's got stickies everywhere. So (laughs) I love your work. So tell me about, I mean, you said, and you know, I introduced you as saying you wanted to do this for 20 years. What took so long? <laughs> I'm just slow, you know, Denise. It's just how it is. Um, <laughs> no, the truth is, is, you know, when the first Go-Giver came out, Anna and I have been together for 25 years. And you know I've published over 30 books. She's my first reader on every book we do. Uh, my first reader and, and best reader. I always look to her critical eye, uh, her discerning eye to tell me what's working in the book and what needs improvement and, and everything. So she looked back in 2005 at the first rough, very rough draft of the original Go-Giver when it slid off my desktop printer and thumped on my desk. She picked it up and read it and said, wow, this is fantastic. And this would make a great book on marriage. This describes what we do. And, and 
And I hadn't thought of it that way, even though there is a scene in, in the center of the Go-Giver that kind of hints at that, a scene between Joe, the hero, and his wife, Susan, which is the, the moment where he starts to sort of get the concept that's being shown him. Um, but yeah, Anna pointed that out. This is her life work. I mean, as you pointed out in, in the little bio, she, she has a, um, a master's in clinical psychology, and, and that's been her family therapy and family coaching, helping couples and individuals live richer, fuller lives. Um, that's been her passion her whole life. So it, it was kind of a perfect marriage of the work that I was doing, these Go-Giver, the Go-Giver series, and the work that she's been doing her whole life. So we knew instantaneously back in 2005, we wanted to do this together. Um, but you know, there were, there were other Go-Giver books to be done first. There were others in the series that we contracted for. There were others in the series that uh, Bob and I knew we wanted to do. And, you know, th things just take their time sometimes. They're, they're, to everything, there is a season. And for us, when COVID hit and we were watching the world shut down and millions of couples finding themselves facing each other for a whole lot more indoor time than they had planned <laughs> and struggling, struggling with that. You know, a friend of mine, a friend of ours just told us recently, you can't get an appointment with a psychotherapist in New York City unless you want to book three years out. You're um, kidding. Um, yeah. yeah. People are oh, suffering. People are suffering. People are suffering, and, and, um, and marriages are under, under more stress than ever. So we, we realized, you know, this is, this is the time. This, this baby is hatched. We, we need to, to sit down and write this book, and we did. The book is in two halves. The first half is called The Parable, which was more or less my job, and the second half is called The Practice, and it's, it's a, as big, again, as The Parable. It's really the book is in two halves, and The Practice is really honest part. Um, the Parable... Like all the Go-Giver books, it tells a little story. It, it tells a story of a young couple whose marriage is not as healthy as they sort of assume it is, and they're struggling with, with some major stresses in their lives. And then in the course of a day, they encounter uh, a number of, of interesting and wise people who expose them to these what we call five secrets to lasting love. The second half of the book, Anna unwraps the story and unwraps those five secrets and lays them out and explains why they work, how they work, and how you can put them into practice in, in your everyday life. Timing is everything, isn't it? Yes. Yes, it is. Yes, it is. It really is because you probably, I'm just taking a wild guess here, you probably could have written this book anywhere along your journey, but it may you not know, have been as know. needed as it is now. Yeah, I yeah, think so. And, and I think also to some extent, Denise, you know, we could have written this back in 2005 or 2008 when the first book was published or, you know, or whenever. But I also think the, the theory underpinning, uh, underpinning relationships, which Anna's familiar with in her work, but also reflects experience. And we've had another decade and a half of experience as a married couple. You know, the great writer Joan Didion once said, I write to find out what I think. And in the Gold River Leader, I took that line and I had a character say, here's what I think. I think we live to find out who we are. And the process of writing is self-discovery and the process of living is self-discovery. And, and I think that Anna and I really have, have also just learned, uh, you know, in the last decade and a half, 
more about how people operate, how we operate, how we operate. Um, I just, I think it's extraordinary. John, you're, you're breaking up. This is a You're breaking up pretty badly. Can you repeat that last little bit? Yeah, I'm so sorry. I don't know why. I don't know. I'll just say I, can, I, I, I can hear most of it, ahead. though, so that's good. Yeah. I can hear most you of it, know. but if you'll just repeat it, that would be helpful. Sure. And you let me know if you want me to hop off the computer and dial it on the phone. I can do that, too. Oh, um, now you sound fine. Yeah. The minute I complain, you sound perfect. Go figure. You need to interfere a little bit more, um, I think, in my, in my diatribes. Yeah, I just think the timing <laughs> is right for the world and for us. Perfect. And listen, I agree with you. Timing is important. And when you decided to sit down and write this book, you were able to take more time that you had spent together and with this topic and present it to a world that I think really needs it. And it's not just the way I read it, to be honest, was it just for married couples? Because I'm not married and I will never be married. I just, I've been there, done it. Ain't gonna, as we say in the South, ain't gonna happen again, hon. I'm done. <laughs> but, but we we have had to learn. In my life, this is true to to be more accepting of other people, whether you know them through Facebook or you actually know them personally, and to be a lot more patient. And this book talks about that as well. You know, the power of appreciation. You know, just different ways to have relationships, whatever they are, wherever they are, without getting all steamed up all the time, which has been happening. People have just gotten nasty. Yes. Yes. And you're absolutely right. I mean, we call this the go-giver marriage, but these five secrets, you can apply them in any relationship, really. They're, They're really five secrets of how to be a human being living with other human beings. And we need that. Oh, my gosh, do we need that, especially on social media. I mean, I'll log into Facebook, or, and I'll, uh, my stomach hurts after about five minutes. I'm like, oh, my God, really? <laughs> you said that? Or even worse, yesterday I was in a mood. I mean, I admitted freely I was in a mood. And I almost feel today like I have to go back and say, I'm sorry, because <laughs> I was crabby. <laughs> Yeah, and I probably will. <laughs> but, but no, the five secrets. So let's talk about those five secrets really briefly so people know as we go on what it is that you're, you're referencing. The, the five secrets are all, they're actually not secret. Um, they're, they're things that we know intuitively. Um, they're things we, we, we naturally practice in our best moments, but then we forget in most of our other moments. Um, and what they are, Denise, is they're all simple ways of behaving uh, in, in everyday life. Um, they, they take minutes a day. You literally can take just minutes a day to implement each one, maybe take one a week or, or even two or three or all of them at once. It's up to you. But you can practice them in just moments a day. It's almost like, like an exercise, simple exercise routine that will shift the tone of your marriage and just establish um, a more, you know, there's something that we call the us in a relationship, which is there's you and then there's me. But when the two of us are living in close proximity or we're working in close proximity, when we occupy the same space for a while, 
there's this overlap of the two of us. And that overlap is, is the us. And it's like a third living, breathing entity. In a marriage um, or, a, or a long-term committed relationship, even if it's called by the name marriage, you know, it, it's tempting for the two people to merge and sort of, you know, give up our own autonomy to the other person or uh, uh, to feel like, you know, I, I can't act independently of you because we're together. But that's not what the us is. What we identify the us is, is this kind of new existence that springs from both of us, almost like a child. And that us is the thing that you're either nourishing or starving in the way that you act towards your partner. And all these five secrets are just simple ways of exercising compassion and a spirit of generosity for the us, for the other person and the ways that you overlap. And I love that you said that you should practice these things because it is way too easy to get in your own head and be crabby. I was yesterday. Yes. I woke yes. up this morning like, oh, good, I got over it. You, I was happy. <laughs> <laughs> I was in a mood yesterday. It doesn't happen often, but when it does, it's epic. And I just have to go along with it and pray that I don't need bail money. That's how I operate with it. <laughs> <laughs> but the the fact what you're saying <clears throat> excuse me I'm losing my voice today what you're saying is that we need to practice these things and you're right we don't think of these things we just don't we're so busy yes you know yes. our brains are skittering around you know I'm in a good yeah. mood I'm in yeah. a bad mood I've got to do this oh my gosh I forgot to do that we have 150 thoughts a second it seems like and it's easy to forget that we have to actually be mindful about how we're treating ourselves and each other. Oh, you said it. That's Ab yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Um, and yet, at the same time, you know, there are there are actual things that we all hold that prevent us from being able to be fully present, giving, and compassionate in our relationship. And those are things like history. And you know, we didn't all magically arrive at the relationship and the romance. We actually came from families and backgrounds and every one of us has our own history that impacts our future relationships. And the example that I frequently use is that if you had a really dismissive father who was very critical and possibly very controlling uh, and maybe, you know, just you could never quite measure up even though you tried really hard, you know, when you go out into the adult world and, look for a relationship, there's a very real possibility that you're going to either be that person in the relationship or you're going to marry that person or attract that person. And that's I was because just thinking that, you know, we, we've always heard that saying, oh, I, you married your father. Oh, geez. That's about the worst thing you can do most of the time. You know, marriage can be a great opportunity for healing if we can all get clear on our issues. But I think that it's, I'm hearing a terrible echo. I hope that you're not hearing it. No, I am hearing it. But you sound okay, so. Possibly. John, can you mute? Yes, yes. Sometimes that helps. Oh, perfect. You know, we all come to our relationship with our histories and no matter what your history is, as soon as the, the, the rush of romance 
goes off the relationship and you're living together and your lives get busy and things happen. People lose their jobs. People have miscarriages. You know, one or the other is struggling with depression or anxiety. You know, stuff happens. And that is when it gets really hard to, to maintain that sense of compassion and giving because all of your own issues start rising up. And when that happens, you know, the most important thing to do is to be able to allow the other person to be where they are, to experience their feelings and to be going through whatever they're going through. You know, in the case of a miscarriage, we often see couples where, you know, she's still grieving three months after the miscarriage and he's like over it and ready to move on. And it's like kind of saying, come on, enough already, you know, and, and you kind of can't do it. You know, you can't do that. You know, that's just another way of trying to control her place. You know, that's where she is right now. What she needs is compassion. She needs time. She needs you to allow her. She needs to be, you need to be fully present. And to, in any way that you can, ask the question, how can I help you to have a better day? Or how can I help you to lift this burden? Is there anything I can do? Because you know, what people need the most in that moment is compassion. When somebody dies in your family, you know, it's so wonderful when you have a friend who just wants to listen and who cares. Um, you know, a lot of times people stop calling, you know, because they figure, you know, hey, a month's gone by, you're probably okay. Um, and frequently that's not true. So when your personal history is getting in the way, self-awareness, emotional intelligence, whatever you want to call it, that allows you to sort of see your reactions rising. If you're getting snippy over something that your, your partner says or does, then really it's not your partner, it's you. Why are you reacting this way? What's going on for you? Um, and, you know, every secret has its opposite. And one of the secrets has the opposite of control. And, you know, if you're trying to control your partner, then there's a but after I love you. I love you, but I would love you more if you lost 20 pounds because I'd feel more attracted to you. I love you, but, you know, you kind of talk too much when we go out socially. Um, you know, <laughs> those are bad examples. I mean, those are examples nobody wants to hear, but there's subtle ways that people often in codependence and, and situations of codependence where they're either trying to please the other partner by behaving or being a certain way, um, or the partner, another partner might be actively trying to change you to be a specific way that they want you to be. And the truth is, in a long-term committed marriage or relationship, the ability to allow the other spouse to be who they are, the way they are, is really important because we are individuals who have joined together. And just like John said earlier, you know, the us is the third entity, third entity in the room. And so you're either feeding the us or you're starving the us based on your behavior. And so it's exceedingly important to allow for each other's shortcomings and to be able to slow down your reactions, take a breath. I mean, Dr. John Gottman speaks about this in all of his marriage research. He calls them harsh startups. It's when people overreact 
and they instantly jump in. They're ready for the fight. Um, If you can slow down your reactions, take a breath, go for a short walk, walk around the house and come back in, you know, whatever it takes to sort of calm down so that you can listen, observe, and, and be more compassionate and understanding. Understand that just because your partner is crabby doesn't mean that it's about you. It's not always about you. And I think that's so important to understand it's not always about us. In fact, it's been my observation over time that it's almost never about me. It's about maybe a way I behaved. It's maybe about something I said. Or, you know, maybe it was just one of those things where I just don't get you. I don't understand you. I'm going to go for a walk. But you know what else I've noticed over time, too, is that when people are constantly at each other's throats, and this bugs me, Anna, it bugs me no end. They say, oh, well, you know, I really love her. I just don't like her. Those are mutually exclusive in my book. You either do or you don't, but you can't love somebody you can't stand. What am I missing here? (laughs) You're not missing anything. That was the ultimate commentary. Um, You know, I mean, I I, I have heard that as well. And it's, it's just, um, you know, it's just another way of saying you don't measure up. You know, oh, you're not who you're not. You're not who, yeah, you're not who I want you to be. <laughs> Tell me that, and I'll lose 190 pounds instantly. It'll be out at the curb. Oh my gosh! It'll be, it'll be your <laughs> it'll suitcase be your out at the curb. <laughs> yeah. No, I keep the house. You go. That's how that works. <laughs> okay. So, it's it's interesting that people get so caught up, and listen, we're all guilty of it. I'm guilty of it. We get so caught up in me, 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 what I think, what you did. This is your fault. It's just almost sometimes impossible to take that breath, to take that break. So do you have any tips where people can say, listen, we're not going to talk about this right now. You need to give me, I need to give me some breathing room. I'm going to go outside, kick some tires, and I'll be back. I do, actually, um, and, and it's secret number one. And all of the secrets are based on developmental theory, and developmental theory is, sim- is very simple. What you needed as an infant and as a child, you still need as an adolescent and as an adult. And so these are very, very simple things that we've always needed and we still need today. And the first one is appreciation. And the power of appreciation is a lot more profound than people realize. They hear that and they're like, yeah, yeah, my wife knows I appreciate her. My husband knows I appreciate him. But it's not as simple as that. Because when I ask the question, well, how often do you tell them? Like, "Mm, gosh, when was the last time you told them you appreciated them in some way or another? And most people can't remember. So it's, it's very important to voice it, and it's very important to voice it frequently. And, you know, it, it is, people get busy, and, and things do become about me. I've got work projects. I've got so much going on. But if you're, you have a choice, you're either feeding the us or you're starving the us. And if you want to feed it, you need to be, you know, coming from a place of acts of generosity, in your relationship. And acts of generosity are things like taking the time every day. And, you know, I start people with just two or three times a day 
pick two or three times a day and observe something that you really love about your partner. And sometimes people have to go digging to think about what that is and then take the time to verbally express it. And it could be as simple as, you know, I never tell you. I never tell you this, but I just really want you to know that when you take the kids shopping on Friday night and I get to take a hot bath and stay home and not have to think about anything and, you know, it's just, it means so much to me. And they come home so happy because they got all this time with you. They had ice cream and they're just skating around the house just on cloud nine because they had time with you. And I just want you to know that it means so much to me. And I think you're such an incredible father, but it, it, for me, you're my hero because you just give me Friday night off and, and rescue me. You know, you know, simple gestures like that are really powerful. I'm listening to it, and I'm realizing how powerful it is. And you're right. We don't – we may think it, but we don't often express it, and we're all guilty. I, I'm the same way. But I'm getting better about it because I have been actually writing it down. Say, like, who do you appreciate today? What do you appreciate? Have you expressed that? I had to train myself to do that, which is – it's sad. But I had to train myself to be a better – appreciator and I don't even know if that's a word or not but it it occurred to me that people will always often say oh Denise you know you said something or did something it was just I'm thankful and I'm like oh thanks I realized on how dismissive I was being when that was my only reaction took me a while but I got there I think it takes us all a, a good deal of time to not only wake up to really adding value to the lives around us, not staying so focused on the trajectory of our own life and our own career and our own work, but rather really paying attention to the little things. You know, my adult daughter calls me every day, and a lot of times it's like right before she goes to bed, and she just wants to say, good night, Mommy. I love you. And, you know, I've gone out of my way in the last few months. Since the book's been written and, and we're actively in I just realized that I, I frequently didn't say to her or tell her how much it means to me that she does that. And you know, she's an adult. We, so, we make a lot of assumptions, don't we? We do. <laughs> yes. See, I love that. My mom passed away a couple of years ago, and there's not a day when I don't think, oh, man, what would mom think? And I'm thinking about the truckers right now and, you know, the different things that are going on in our insane world. And I can hear her voice in my head. I really can. But I want to call her because we talked about all kinds of things, and I can't. My brother passed away last year. He was a double lung transplant recipient, and he lived eight years. I can't talk with him. I miss those, and I, I miss the missed opportunities. Oh, that is such a mouthful. I mean, I think that when family members die, and especially when you lose multiple, so that, you know, in my case, I'm the last person in my primary family that's still on the earth. My uh, only sibling is gone, and both my parents are gone, and there's this big hole when they leave, because the last one to leave, you, you suddenly are, you know, like you're kind of a, a child all alone in the world. And, you know, yeah, I, was an, yeah. I was, yeah, I was an adult in my, in my fifties, 
but I was still feeling really bereft. And so I, I completely understand. And I think that um, grief and family sickness is really tough on a relationship. It's, it's um, you know, it's one of those moments when you really need to pick up the slack, allow for the fact that your partner is completely stressed and grieving and just really just cover as many bases as you can to make their life easier because, um, you know, you will need the same thing if you're ever the person that's sick. I mean, I broke my leg and John had to literally take over making dinner. I couldn't get a glass of water across the room. I mean, you really get to understand in a relationship the minute one of you is completely disabled, what ha- you know, the kind of, of uh, you know, stress it creates. And are those those times when you look back and, and say, I didn't even think to say thank you for the things that he's been doing all along just because he is who he is. It just never occurred to me that this is a really great guy and he treats me really well and I feel like I've nurtured the relationship, but I didn't say thank you as often as I should have. <laughs> what do you think, Tom? You know, I was just thinking <laughs> hearing you talk. Um, I think one thing about our relationship is that we've both been – really intentional um, about about things like that. And so, for example, Anna's knee, it was actually her knee that broke, and it was a horrendous break. Um, you can't cast a broken knee. So she just, it was just, you know, wrapped in on ice, and basically she's flat on her back or sitting in a couch or in a chair. For a year and a half, she couldn't walk. And after that, I mean, there was, then there was a wheelchair, and then there were crutches, and then finally, you know, by the time I, when I proposed to her, she still had crutches on, because this had happened just before we got married. Since that time, there is literally not a day that goes by that both of us don't at some point say, look at this, holy cow, I am propelling myself across this room on these two long appendages. It's like, this is the most amazing balancing act. I'm walking. I remember what it was like as a, as, or, or I, I would imagine every day what it was like as a, as a baby to suddenly be aloft on these legs and say, wow. And you know what? I think that's kind of the essence of what we're driving at in this book. You said it, Denise, there's so much we take, we take for granted or that we assume. You know, the thing of appreciation that Anna's talking about, when you are first together as a brand new couple, you appreciate everything. I mean, they can do no wrong. Everything she says is, is brilliant. Everything word out of his mouth is, is hilarious, right? She's the most gorgeous woman on the planet. He's the most handsome man in the galaxy. You know, you appreciate everything that could possibly be noticed. But time happens. Until you don't. Until you don't. And that's where exactly. you have to start, you know, with your, your mindset. That's where you have to start with your practicing. So I get and, it. I didn't do it, but I get it now. Here's the thing about mindset, too. It it works both ways. I mean, you're absolutely right. It is a mindset, and we we call it the mindset of generosity. It's the mindset of giving the other person the benefit of the doubt, being compassionate. That's the mindset. We call it the mindset of lasting love. It's the mindset that, that, that allows your trajectory to persevere throughout a lifetime, just getting richer and richer and richer. So, yeah, you need to have the mindset. But sometimes the way you feed that mindset is by stuff you do. And, and 
don't take this the wrong way, but it can even be stuff you do when you don't exactly feel like it. <laughs> like you get in the habit of voicing your appreciation. It actually feeds that mindset. There's, there's a story I love about that. We just heard this a few days ago. A friend um, has two kids, eight and five, and they would, they would fight as siblings will occasionally do. <laughs> and uh, he said normally he would just, when they start fighting, he'd just scream at them, say, kids, stop it. But he started something new. Instead of screaming at them, he would separate them and say, okay, right now, not, don't give it a thought, just immediately right now, I want both of you to say three nice things about the other one. And so the, one of them goes, well, uh, he's, uh, he's good at math. He likes dinosaurs. And <laughs> it's like his heart was obviously not in it, right? But no, he's and he going had to stop and think about it. <laughs> exactly. It didn't exactly. come instantly. Yes. And so that, and that's, that's the thing. We all have to stop and think about it. We're all that little kid saying, what do I love about her? I've got to, I've got to stop and remember. It's like, yeah. oh, you know, the things that, and then you have, sometimes you, there are characters in the book that you see them do that to stop and think and, you know, nothing comes up because I haven't been in that mindset because I haven't been reminding myself because I haven't had the practice. It's a practice. It's a thing that you just practice at every day. And as you practice it, it feeds the mindset of lasting love. And as the mindset deepens, that feeds the practice. They go back and forth in a, in a, in a positive cycle. I love that. And it is difficult. I mean, towards the end of my marriage, I didn't like him none. And I still don't, to be honest. But I don't hate him anymore. But I remember looking at him and... And look, I was at a lot of fault here. I'm not saying this was all him. We just fell completely apart. And towards the last two years, we didn't do a darn thing to fix it. That That's just all there was. And shame on us. We could have at least been friends, but that even went out the window. You know, I, heard both I, think... Anna, I heard both Anna and me react. Go ahead, sweetheart. <laughs> <laughs> well, I, I think that, you know, I mean, John and I were both married before. For a long time. I mean, we both got married believing that this was a lifelong commitment. So I was married for 21 years. And, you know, when you marry very young, you often will marry somebody who has wounds that you need to heal yourself. And so there are ways that you're drawn together because you have similar things to heal. And and that can create a that can create a great deal of ambivalence in a relationship because you see it in the other person and the part of you that doesn't want to deal with it personally is avoiding it. You're, you're pulling back and, and kind of going, uh-oh, there it is rising up again. I think I'll walk away and go to my computer and work on a project for the next two hours and I'll avoid her and I'll, or I'll avoid him. And I think that a lot of couples get in a pattern, and, I, and we see this with sex all the time, where, you know, 20% of, of couples in America don't have, you know, they have sex less than 10 times a year. Um, so it, and for, for some, it's not at all. And often it's that one person's desire has just backed off. But I think often there's an avoidance of the emotional context of the relationship because there's something painful there that when you get emotionally close, 
something rises up in you that really hurts. And if you don't take the time to get into personal therapy for yourself and, and really talk to the therapist about what happens to you when you get close to your wife or husband, why am I reacting this way? Why am I feeling like I just want to run out the door? Then you really, it's not even about couples therapy. Again, when I, I said earlier, self-awareness and self-compassion is just as important in a marriage as compassion and, and self-awareness for your, you know, extended to your spouse. Because your own material is going to rise up. If you're somebody who criticized was criticized a lot as a kid and you find yourself, you've got your hands on your hips before he even comes in the door. Wow, I can't believe it. You forgot the milk again. You know, it's like there's so many ways that you can just like with one line, you can just drop a bomb on the evening. And people do it all the time because they're tired, they're strung out, they're financially stressed, they're working really hard. Maybe one person is carrying the housework. You know, the little scorecard And that's what John and I refer to it as the little scorekeeper. You know, as minute you have that scorecard up in front of your face, you know, you aren't looking at the relationship with clear eyes. You're looking at the score you're keeping. I did the dishes three times this week. What have you done? You know, if that's how you're, you're managing your relationship, you're not managing it. You're criticizing it, your score, scorekeeping and your, and your partner. It's just like a kid. They're like a sponge. They soak it up. They know exactly how you feel about them. So if you want your partner or your husband or your wife to know that you adore them, you have got to make gestures that they know it. And you've got to quit the scorecard. If you want to feed the relationship, it has to go away. I never thought of it as being a scorecard. And by the way, you just discussed the last five years of my marriage. Now I'm going to need to sit in the corner and cry, but that's okay. It was, it was, it wasn't fun. But you're right. There were scorecards. There were. I mean, I can't tell you how many times I just walked out and said, "I'm going to go for a drive. I, I cannot fight with you. You cannot bully me. Whatever it was." And I would just walk out, and then I would come back completely shut down and go to my computer. I got a lot of work done. A lot. But it didn't help my my relationship at all. But you said something on it that was so important. I scribbled it down. Ambivalence and avoidance. I was a master of both. And I'm realizing that. And, you know, this is the stuff that, you know, don't never say never, Denise. Because, you know, you could meet somebody. And if you're awake to these patterns, it doesn't no, have no, to no, be that no. way. No meeting, no, no, okay. <laughs> <laughs> no. <laughs> but what if there are cats? You're right. I have cats. Yes, <laughs> there you go. I am perfectly happy all by myself. I'm an introvert, so I'm happiest when I'm just left completely alone. But you know, I've been there, done it. It really wasn't for me. But thank you. I appreciate you thinking I could maybe kind of sort of do it again. Well, what I'm really suggesting is that for anyone that's listening. You know, just because you've been ambivalent or you've been avoidant, and, you know, a lot of people who have got personal emotional issues will have a kind of avoidant style. You know, they'll back Mm -hmm. away from intimacy. And I I truly think that's why intimacy in the bedroom slows down, is that somebody starts to avoid it. There's something in them that feels uncomfortable. And, you know, people could be abuse survivors, you know, people who have been hit or sexually abused 
or have had trauma, you know, there's body everything that's ever happened to you. It has perfect memory. So, you know, get get with somebody. John, can you mute? Get with somebody. I was breaking up pretty badly. Oh, I'll stop. No, no, no. Keep going. I was muted, actually, but I'll mute again. Get with somebody who is is can work with you get with a counselor get with a coach get with somebody who can work with you directly sorry i didn't mean to cough on you so let's go back to the um the scorecard i'm fascinated by that because you don't know what you don't know you're not paying attention to what is really important so you don't kind of give it a label or you know, say, like, oh, yeah, I do have a scorecard. Oh, geez, I'm really treating the person who is supposed to be closest to me in the world like garbage, and this is how I'm doing it. How would you suggest that people take that scorecard and say, okay, I, I do this, I do this, I do this, and start scratching through those things and work their way through those? Actually, can I say something on that one? Yeah, go, I was gonna. You I know, was gonna say you go for it, John. So, you know what I what I'd say first. First off, is that the way you shift a bad habit is by replacing it with a positive habit. Um, trying to shift a bad habit by working at that bad habit is kind of like trying not to think of a pink elephant. Um, so it's like when when you're in the groove, and, and as Anna describes, it's like a neurological groove. When you're in, in the neurological pattern, you're in the habit of finding fault or of being irritated, what we call building the list, you know, building the scorecard. When you're in that groove, and that's what you've been doing, it, it's a self-feeding process. And it, it's really an addiction. Sometimes people tell us when oh. drop. Yeah, people. We say drop the scorecard, and we've had people say, "This I've tried. I've been trying what you told me to do. I've been trying all week, and this is like you know, this is like going cold turkey, and it's it, it's like I'm in withdrawal. Yeah, right, because it's an addiction. Absolutely, the way that you replace it, or the way that you change it, is to find something to replace it with, and what you replace it with is appreciation. If you start building the habit, even though it's like he likes dinosaurs, it's like not something you really are are feeling great about, just like you're doing it because you've been told to do it. Yeah, but still, it starts to build that muscle. It starts to cut that neurological groove. When you start going on a treasure hunt for what are the things in this person that I'm furious at, who is driving me crazy, that drives me nuts, that I can't stand, that I have a thousand things bad to say about, what is it about that person that I love, that that I like, or that I appreciate, that I admire, that I can least respect? And it may be actually writing those things down. It may be something you've got to take yourself by the hand, start a scratch pad of paper, and write them down, of course, part of the of the practice is you can't just identify them. You also have to go over and say them. He likes dinosaurs. You know, <laughs> have to say them out loud. For a lot of people, and this can be surprising. We've seen it shock the hell out of people. For a lot of people, this can feel awkward, stiff, unnatural. Yeah. yeah. 
it's threatening like I'm not you and doing this. Right, it's threatening your perception of how everything is supposed to be, and now you're finding out but you that do it. he's not the ass, you are. Exactly. You do it, and then you do it again, and then you do it again, and it may not even feel good when you do it. You may walk away from that, from that, that first 60-second statement of what you appreciate saying, oh, God, I made a mess of that. That felt so awkward. I, I feel like an idiot. That's okay. Pick yourself up and you do it again. You do it again. It starts to build the neurological groove and your brain stops noticing. It may be gradual. Your brain stops noticing the things that drive you nuts because it's too busy trying to notice the things that you admire. You know, there's this thing that the scientists call the reticular activating system. There's it's a little network of neural fibers in your brain that connects the two halves of the brain. It's most active when you wake up in the morning and right when you go to sleep at night. Now this, this reticular activating system, part of its job is to sift through all your sensory input and pick out what's important. It's the prioritizer in your brain, in your, in your conscious brain. And in your unconscious brain, actually. And, and when you start looking for something, it's like when you think of a blue car, everywhere you look, you see blue cars. When you start thinking about redheads, everywhere you look, there's a redhead. When you start looking for a fault in someone, everything they do drives you nuts because your reticular activating system is primed to find the things that drive you nuts. So what you do is you take hold of it and you shift it. Remember I said first thing in the morning, last thing at night? Those are really good times. When you first wake up, train yourself to the first thought you make is, I'm awake. I'm in the world. I'm not dreaming. This guy Gratitude. Next guy next what, what do I love about him? Yep. Yeah. Yep. And see, I do the same thing. Before, I don't sleep a whole heck of a lot, never have. And I'm not an, an insomniac. I just don't fall asleep or stay asleep. I catnap, literally. I will sleep for a couple of hours and I get up and... You know, I may make tacos, I may vacuum, I may read a book, I may actually fall back asleep. There's no telling. But I have trained myself over many, many years to turn something, whatever's bothering, really bothering me, that, you know, my brain just said, okay, this didn't get solved today. What are you going to do about it? I will turn that over to my subconscious for review. And it always shows up. The answer always shows up. 3.18 in the morning, but it shows up. So I know exactly what you're talking about. I know something secret about you, Denise. You know why you like tacos? Why? Because when you spell it backwards, it's O-cat. <laughs> I love tacos. Listen, if you don't love tacos, we can't be friends. That's just all there is to I Hey, have this is my job. <laughs> okay. I'll, I'll, send, I'll send you a bill. Oh, Okay. <laughs> <laughs> Anna, we'll talk. <laughs> Thank you for that. That is that's actually pretty funny, and I'm going to you know obviously remember that forever and ever. So now it's in my brain. But we are. I wanted to ask you guys because in the book you talk about how you feed the relationship, and we've talked a bit about that. But do you want to kind of run it down in a logical, linear way so people go, "Oh, I can do that. Oh, I haven't done that. Oh, geez." So let's let's sort it out if you can. I mean, I'll start with that, and then I'll and then I'll I'll, I'll pass the baton. But you know, the way in terms of how you feed the relationship, I think you know the first thing to to, to notice is that, um, and Anna talks about this, you know, so 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 brilliantly. But I'll take a quick amateur step. The things you needed as a baby are the same things you need as an adult. 
is developmental theory. It's on his background. Babies need to be told, oh, you are the cutest baby I've ever seen in my life. Oh, aren't you adorable? You are so and, – and little toddlers need to, be, need to be told, look at you. Look at you. You can read that whole book by yourself. Look at you. You are growing so big. You are so strong. You are such an amazing little boy. Kids need that because they're forming their picture of themselves. And they need you to help them do that. You're like, these words, these praises are formative material, the clay they're building themselves out of. You still need it as an adult because it's a little kid right inside you that never goes away. So the first way that you build that relationship, you feed the relationship, is you feed the other person with what we're saying, the power of appreciation. I mean, it, it is only one of a, of a whole you know, range of things you can do. But believing in the other person, appreciating them, telling them what you, what you admire about them, what you respect about them, and, and making sure you don't just take those things for granted, um, that's, that's sort of the foundation of how you, how you feed the relationship. And I now pass the baton. You know, I don't have much else to add except that um, piece about, you know, also leaving open the space for them to be a separate individual and for them to have their own needs, their own feelings, their own need for space. I mean, if you're an introvert married to an extrovert, um, you both need to understand the different styles. I mean, we're both introverts, so we have no trouble going to each of our offices and giving each other almost the whole day. And then we'll come together late in the afternoon, go for a long walk, and then we'll make dinner. We'll have several hours together. Um, but frequently we'll separate again right before bed to just get a few last-minute things finished and close down our computers or whatever. You know, once you understand the rhythm of the other person, you can have a little more respect for it. Um, I think that the, the need to be um, seen and heard and witnessed extends beyond just being appreciated. It, it extends to a much bigger degree to the places where you're hurting, the places where you're um, feeling insecure. I mean, you can be in a brand new job and have a boss who's really, really riding hard and you are feeling really inadequate and maybe you got called out on something. And if you don't have the space and the ability for that to be a shared experience for one person to be able to talk to the other without the other person saying, well, why aren't you doing this? Or why aren't you doing that? It, you know, it's so much more powerful to listen and to say, wow, that sounds hard. Um, to have some compassion and be, be kind. Kindness is so powerful in a relationship. And it's, it's, you know, it's your own material that's holding you back from your kindness. It's your own material holding you back from your compassion. And usually it's because you don't have kindness or compassion for yourself. So it's really hard to extend it to another. So again, See, I was going to ask you about that because we have to start with ourselves, don't we? We have to be kind to ourselves and understand ourselves and look at our blockages and find help if we need it. It's, but we can't fix it if we're not aware of it, I think. And sometimes awareness is the biggest obstacle as humans that we have, I think. Uh, I would agree. Um, I think that it's hard to be self-aware when you're reacting before you allow yourself the space to feel. And, and that's, that's and one thing that I, I noticed. Yeah. One thing that I've always noticed is that, and what you said about listening is so important because 
when we're talking, women in particular, I think, when we're talking, we don't want you to jump up and fix it. We just want you to hear us. Don't fix it. We'll get it fixed unless we ask for that, you know, that help. Don't try to fix it. Just shut up and listen, (laughs) which is a rude way of saying it, but it happens. You know, we do um, Zoom trainings that people can sign up for on our website. And uh, we often tell people in the middle of the training that no matter who's bringing the issue, listen and don't be thinking about what you want to say to help them fix it. Just listen, because most people simply want to be heard. And the more you listen, the more they feel heard. You don't have to say a single thing. Um, In fact, John and I have a joke in our relationship. You know, I might be downloading about something that's bothering me. And he'll, you know, every two or three minutes, he'll as a phrase, he says it to make me laugh. It's not about the other person that or the other situation that I'm talking about. But every two or three minutes, he'll say, the bastards. (laughs) <laughs> you see when he says it. Yeah, I know in that moment that he is, um, I know in that moment that he's really extending compassion and at the same time he's trying to let me know he is listening and he does know that this situation has created hardship for me. Um, but he's also trying to lift my, lift my mood a little by just really acknowledging that, you know, this sounds hard and they sound like they misunderstood or didn't, you know, whatever the situation is. But I just think that that listening is so important, really important. It is. And Anna, do you find, and John as well, do you find that as you're ranting or unloading or just chatting, whatever, however you want to term it, that you're, also listening to yourself and you've already probably found one or two solutions and you don't need it fixed. You just want to be heard. I want to jump in and say, absolutely. In fact, you know, I think of myself as a relatively intelligent adult, but it was only once I I had been with Anna for some years that I started to, to know myself a lot better. When she would ask me, how are you feeling about this? And I would find myself going, uh, I don't know. I just, I feel bad, but I don't know exactly why. And with her patient questioning and especially listening, um, knowing that I could unload to her without being judged, without her coming back and criticizing what I'm saying or, you know, or judging what I'm saying or assessing what I'm saying, just listening. I found myself sort of walking through the, the, the minefield of exactly what it is that's bothering me and, and untangling a lot of knots that I couldn't untangle on my own. That is the power of listening. It, it, kind of, it kind of gives you more tools and resources to work things out on your own. Absolutely. And honestly, speaking it out loud, listen, I live alone with cats. I'm not the crazy cat lady yet, but I have full intentions of getting there at some point. But I often talk to myself because once I hear what I'm saying, I will either wince or I will go, oh, good girl, or something in between. But I have to speak it out loud so I hear it and so the universe hears it and corrects me. I can course correct if needed. That's a great strategy, a really great strategy. Um, I was going to add that. Often when John has been processing something, I find that the questions are also, you know, I'll give him a lot of room to talk. But then I remember one day asking him as he was talking about a situation that was bothering him. And I said, do you think that the two of you have really, really 
polar opposite communication styles and that what you're reacting to is that you're very precise and very clear when you communicate and he's a little more um a little more ADD and a little bit more um you know just less organized and do you think that might be what you're reacting to and you know look on his face was like whoa because he suddenly realized it was what he was reacting to and it changed completely the way he handled that relationship and that situation because he suddenly realized that this guy wasn't doing anything to bother him. It was just he had a really different style of how he communicated. And you would think on the face of it that that would be easy to figure out, right? But it's not. You just know that you're irritated and something's bothering you. You don't know what it is, and all of a sudden you don't like your friend. But it is a difference in communication. That's brilliant. Well, in a marriage, it's really important. Okay, who well, in a marriage, it's really important. It, in, yes, and I can see that it would be. We've only got about two minutes left, and ah, I have so many more questions. The book is fantastic. Before I let you guys go, if you would, both of you just kind of pop in and tell us, you know, what it is that you really want people to take from this book and from from the information that you're sharing because, listen, and I believe this wholeheartedly, we need this now, whether it's for a marriage, whether it's for communication online, whether it's communication talking to the person on the phone who is about to, you know, do something ugly to your bank account. You never know what's going to happen. And if you can listen, be compassionate, be present, I think things would just go so much better for the world at large. So go. <laughs> Talk away. I'll, I'll, I'll start with that. And I'll, I'll say the, the book, The Go-Giver Marriage, is, is really easy to read. It's short. It's a simple read. And that's no accident because the things that it takes – to make a dramatic shift in your marriage are not big, huge, daunting, complicated tasks where you have to just totally change yourself. They're simple things. They're just simple, to, easy to do. It's just that they're also easy not to do. And so take, take the book as your guideline. Take it in hand. Do what feels natural to you and apply it every day. And you will see a shift that may feel tiny today and tiny tomorrow, but will be dramatic even in months, even in weeks. And you have the opportunity to be a much better person as this goes on. Absolutely. And I think that what I want the listeners to go away with is that people who come from a space of giving and generosity, um, the research is very, very rich. Um, They live longer. They have healthier hearts. Every cell in their body is affected by the giving. Um, And they are generally happier and more buoyant in life. And all of their relationships, both with their spouse, their family, and their children, are all healthier and, and stronger. So it sounds like a simple solution, just giving or acts of generosity in different ways. And we only touched one. There's four, four others. Um, each one is each one is very significant and powerful in its delivery and also in its impact on you. And so um, I, I just want to encourage people. It's, it's, uh, it's just so easy to get your mind in the 
in the negative groove, in the critical groove, in the looking for things that are wrong, in the keeping score, um, consider changing the neurological tape. Exactly. And gratitude is so important, so important. And if you can pay attention to what you're really grateful for and then expand that on a regular basis, how bad can it go? I mean, it's got to get better for you and the people around you. Absolutely. Well, listen, we are, we're no longer um, streaming, but we are still recording. So anybody that comes in later can hear the end of this. So where, the book, I wanted to ask about the book. It's not out yet. It'll be out in March. But you have a a special kind of offer for it if people pre-order. Can you tell us about that real quick? Sure. The book is out on March 8th. And the website there is a special order, a uh, special offer for people who pre-order who order the book before market. And what happens if you if you buy the book from anywhere, Amazon, Barnes and Noble, local bookstore, order it anywhere books are sold. Go to our website, plug in your your order number or your receipt, and we will send you um, two free videos, which are uh, video masterclasses Anna and I recorded. One is on the mindset of lasting love. One is on dealing with conflict and you'll also get access to a live fireside chat we're going to do exactly a week to the book comes out with a q a session an interactive session for the people who call in or who zoom in um, to ask their questions and we'll do our very best to give the answers and all that is on our, our website which is gogivermarriage.com and dan rockwell is our host for that fireside chat so it'll be a lot of fun I saw that, and I was impressed. So thank you. It has been lovely having both of you come back here, and I probably will get you to come back after the book is launched because by then you will have a lot of feedback, and I would love to hear the feedback, and I'm sure our audience would as well. So would you come back? Oh, good. You you know I do this on the radio, so you can't tell me no, right? John, you've been down this road with me before. (laughs) (laughs) Nothing shouldn't surprise you. But yeah, after it is out there and people are going, oh, this works. and Oh, I'm getting better. And, you know, the world doesn't look so ugly anymore. I I would love to hear what people have to say and how they've just said, you know, I can do this. I've got this. Love to. Great. Well, listen. Thank you. Well, thank you both so much for being here. You know, and I appreciate it very much. And I thank you for sending me the book. I really, you know, I was so proud that you saw me on Facebook. because like, I got a copy. Did you? Nee, 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 nee. So it was great. I loved it. We loved it. We, we had a little bit of, you know, I got it first. <laughs> it was a lot of fun. But David and Anna. John, I'm sorry, John and Anna, it has been wonderful speaking with you, and I thank you for spending time with us. And before I say goodbye, I would like to remind our audience to be sure to look for us on iTunes and anywhere else you consume your business podcasts. Honestly, you can't throw a stick on the Internet without hitting your partner in Success Radio. So take us along on your success journey and make a note to pay attention to when I get you two to come back. I can't wait. Seriously, I can't wait. So thank you very much. Thank you. Thank you. 
get your voice heard. If you would like to launch your own far-reaching podcast, contact Denise Griffiths at yourofficeontheweb.com and go to the podcast tab. 